Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Alright, how's everyone doing? Did everyone enjoy Thanksgiving? Or everyone who celebrates Thanksgiving in my American audience enjoy it? Hope you all did. So, this episode is part two of my interview with Professor Stanley Fish. And each half of that is pretty self-contained. So the first half is a discussion of the theoretical issues surrounding free speech. This one is a discussion of campus politics. And both halves are fairly self-contained. So while you're definitely welcome to go back and check out the first, and it will provide a bit of context to this, it's not necessary at all to understand it. Both are on somewhat separate topics and both follow um, pretty much a single line of argumentation through. I'm not going to do a super long introduction for this one. I introduced Professor Fish in the last episode, and because I do push back on his arguments at several points, I'm not going to do an issue overview, so I can't be accused of um, sneaking in additional points to try and win an argument that way. And when I approach these things, I'm never trying to quote-unquote win the argument. I'm trying to produce an interesting conversation. But either way, I won't do a long issue introduction at the beginning. I'm also probably not, I'm also not, I don't think, going to do a bibliography for this one. Because while the first episode was quite like citation intense, where we were both referencing a lot of works, particularly within the history of liberalism, um, this one isn't. This one's more just like an exchange of views. There is some bits where we're referencing stuff, but honestly, even there, um, the stuff that does get referenced is Professor Fish talks a little bit about Milton in this one, and I'm just not the right person to provide a reading list for Milton. I, I read Paradise Lost back in the day. I think I've read a couple of the political things when I was on my republicanism binge. But that's really about it. I'm not anything close to a specialist there, so I wouldn't be the right person to put together a reading list for that. Just quickly, coming up on the podcast next, we're going to have like a bunch of interviews. I've been getting a, a lot of interest in people or sort of people reaching out on behalf of people to come on the podcast. And so... Well, I mean, just first of all, um, I've really got to say uh, thank you to everyone who shares episodes, recommends to friends, sponsors us on Patreon, anything like that, because it's because of that organic growth that we have got a bit of profile and we are, you know, able to interest, uh, you know, high profile people in coming on the show. So thank you so much for that. So I'm thinking the next few months will probably be mostly interviews. You know, I, I don't know, I might try and get a quick question and answer, audience questions type thing in there somewhere. Maybe do a solo episode here or there, depending. But my schedule really is full of, like, interviews and interview requests. I, Which is terrific. I've honestly been kind of spoiled for choice when it comes to that. So, you know, my goal is about half solos, half interviews at the moment, and we're kind of coming off a fairly long stretch of solos, so I figured it's time for a stretch of interviews, and that'll take us through to 2020, easily, with what I've already recorded and have booked in my calendar. And then maybe, like, 
end of January or something, February, like around that time, we could maybe do go back and do some solos. Or I'm thinking of doing another long solo series, like I did my long uh, four-part History of Libertarianism series, which, to, to my frank amazement, turned out to be really popular. So I'm thinking interviews for like a stretch, and then something like that in the new year. But that's provisional, you know. Send me feedback, you know, about what you would like to see on the show, uh, which guests you liked, um, which solo episodes you liked, what sort of balance you want to see. So, let's get back to this episode. I said I wasn't going to preface it with an issue discussion, but I'll make a couple of quick notes. Um, well, first note, actually, purely semantic thing, is if you didn't catch the first part, you'll hear me use the word rhetoric a lot in this conversation. I'm substituting that in and using rhetoric where I would normally use the word ideology. And that was based on a comment that Professor Fish made in the first part of this episode. So that sort of makes sense to me, because I see ideologies in a strongly linguistic frame, and so I'm happy to substitute the word rhetoric in if that's going to enable the conversation to flow more smoothly. So if you are a long-time listener and you sort of know my language and how I talk about these things, for rhetoric, read ideology. So that's just like a quick technical terminology note. The one framing point I would want to make here is that when I do push back on stuff that guests are saying, I try to do so from within a frame of reference that they can accept. I try to translate my concerns into their particular ideological language or rhetoric. And in this case, I decided the way to do that was framing my concerns in terms of expressing them within the anti-foundationalist paradigm. And that, I think, produced quite an interesting exchange and a way of exploring some of these controversial culture war issues that, I mean, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit here, but that I haven't heard before. The other thing I tend to do is to stick with a particular argument or to stick with a particular line of argumentation until it exhausts itself. So one thing I can imagine people saying in response to this is obviously there's a whole load of issues and points that get brought up with respect to politics and social justice on college campuses. And there's a whole load on both sides of the argument, right? There's a whole load of other topics or discussion points that could have been raised that weren't, but I prefer to just take one thing and really try and be like, let's get to the bottom of this, let's dig out what are really the sort of foundational disagreements here, and I make both of those moves. I just wanted to sort of make this point as a clarification, not of the points I'm going to make, but like my method in how I conduct interviews and how I think about conducting them is I make both of those moves because I think it will make the final result more interesting. They're not argumentative strategies, they're not debating strategies, they're interviewing strategies aimed not at winning or losing, I don't really think about these discussions like that, but in terms of can we create something people haven't heard before, something that maybe takes the conversation to the next level, 
And I think most importantly, to have a conversation that builds on itself, that has a structure to it, that like it tracks a line of argumentation and leads the audience um, being able to, you know, they, the audience might walk away on any particular side of the issue, but leaves them understanding the, what's at stake in that argument in a more three-dimensional sense. So that's always my goal, and that's how I think about it. I leave it completely up to the audience whether I succeeded in this particular instance. But I did sort of want to be clear about what my method and sort of approach is, which is to proceed in such a way as you create, whatever the topic, you create a conversation that builds on itself, and you create a conversation that leaves the audience, wherever they might stand on that issue, with a greater appreciation for the contours of disagreement. So I'll pause there. I said I didn't want to front load the conversation. I fear I just did. But I did want to make that note about like how I think about this and what I'm trying to achieve. So with that as preamble, let's get straight to it. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really thought it worked well. And um, again, I'll leave it to you to judge. But I felt we were able to get that more sustained engagement. And I don't know, I just really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you do too. So no further points from me. Let's get to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you part two of my conversation with Professor Stanley Fish. My thinking is centered on the academy and academic life. Mm. Uh, and, and I have, a, uh, for, for a long time, been insisting uh, that the academic life, uh, whether it take the form of research and publication uh, or the form of teaching, mm. uh, is one from which the political, in a, in a strong partisan sense, should be excluded. Mm. That is, that when you're engaged in classroom discussions, you're turning over ideas, you're comparing them, uh, you're studying uh, their history uh, and the, their emergence in different contexts and different cultures and all of that. What you're not doing is urging your students uh, to embrace uh, one of the competitors and then uh, to march out of the classroom uh, and live a life accordingly. Uh, at least that's the argument I've been making, that being, in the, being an, an academic, uh, a member of the academy, is to engage in an activity uh, which deliberately stops short of the waters of politics. Now, one response to that is to say quite correctly uh, that the very existence of colleges and universities, their funding, uh, the uh, uh, access they have to utilities, and 100,000 other things uh, is inextricably uh, involved uh, with politics uh, and uh, political structures, to which I reply, yes, that's right. But you can have an institution like the academy, which in some ways is politically constructed, but then say that it is appropriate within that political construction to have a policy of not proceeding 
politically, which doesn't mean that political topics cannot be taken up in the classroom uh, or uh, in uh, your research, but that when they are taken up, they are interrogated from an academic point of view and not from a point of view uh, that uh, leads to you uh, marching uh, uh, or manning the barricades uh, or, or leading a cause. So that's my take uh, on the political. The political is a death knell uh, for any kind of academic work. The moment that either individual academics or universities as a whole position themselves on any side of a political issue is the moment uh, when they have given up their identity uh, as academics. Let me push back a bit here, though, because we might we might disagree on this. Um, I mean, I, I noticed you used the word political, and then you 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 defined it as in the strong partisan sense, because right. as you noted, um, you know, universities exist within they're they're created by and embedded within political institutions, right? There's another sort of small p sense of politics, which is at least in the humanities. If you're going to be trying to study history and telling people how, you know, these are ways of sort of thinking about the world and enlarging minds and all of that, you're necessarily going to be dabbling in um, these different um, rhetorics, to use the word that we've been using, and that there's no way of exploring those rhetorics that's um, fully viewpoint neutral. You can just explore them on their own terms or on their competitors' terms, but those rhetorics don't exist independent from partisan politics. Indeed, they I know, but you can study them. You can study them. Hmm. You can study them. That's, I think, a lot uh, quite different uh, from studying them with a view uh, to coming down uh, uh, from arriving at a judgment as to the superiority of one over the other. Uh, and, and in other words, any topic, including political topics, uh, 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 can legitimately be introduced into a classroom discussion. So long, and I here I'm repeating it myself, it remains the object of academic interrogation and not interrogation um, uh, w- with a view uh, to taking action once you move out of the classroom. Let me give you a concrete example of maybe what I'm driving Good. at. Um, is let me say I was teaching a course on the history of liberalism, which is what mm-hmm. we've been discussing. There's right. a view in contemporary discourse that um, libertarianism or sort of neoliberalism is sort of the original form of liberalism, and that progressive liberalism or welfare state liberalism is sort of a later outgrowth. If I were teaching a course on the history of liberalism, I would actually argue, and I'm not going to go into this, but I'm convinced by the historical case that actually it's the opposite, and that a strongly individualist liberalism is actually the outgrowth, and a more sort of um, uh, progressive liberalism is the original. We don't have to argue that here, that's just my view. I think I'd agree with you just just in passing. Go on. Um, So if I were teaching a course on liberalism, I would give that view. Now, I would say to my students, this is in some ways an unconventional view, and it's not certainly how people on the political uh, right present it. Now, that 
I think would fall um, very much on the academic side of the distinction as you constructed it. But yes, it would. in giving my students that, I would have sort of told them one of the big things that you're getting from the political right about its own sort of self-identity, at least on economic matters, is wrong, right? And even if I sort of premised it with this is my view, you know, there are other views, um, if I was persuasive in that, I would still have convinced my students of it and probably given them something that would make them more favourably disposed, at least on some primed subconscious level maybe, to a progressive liberalism. So I still would have taken an action that would have a partisan impact. Now, you, you wouldn't have to necessarily say that, that that conservative position on that issue was wrong. Uh, uh, and in fact, what I would say, if I were teaching that same course, uh, I would say, well, look, let's take a look at this position. Uh, does it cohere within, you know, with, re- with respect uh, uh, to the history uh, of the problem uh, it addresses? Here are two parts of it. Uh, uh, do they uh, hang together? Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, they might not. Uh, and there uh, I would leave it. Um, uh, in one of my uh, essays, I, unfortunately I'm now so old that I've forgotten what it is that I've written and where, uh, but in one of my essays, uh, oh, I know it is, it's an introduction to the, my collection of uh, pieces that I wrote, uh, some pieces that I wrote for the New York Times over a period of years, uh, uh, I, I say that your, let's say you hold a position, uh, and you're reading uh, somebody's account of the position that you hold. You could yourself decide that the account of the position that you in fact hold uh, is a very bad account, mm-hmm. and that the arguments put forward uh, are not ones that you would approve. But you still hold, uh, 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 you still hold uh, to the position. What I'm trying to say here in a rather awkward way um, is that you can point out the deficiencies uh, in some academic sense uh, of a point of view or of a position and still come out on the other end, if you were asked, affirming that position. Mm. I I just always want to maintain that there is an area of of, uh, activity which we can call academic, and that most of us who have been academics or spent some time in the academy recognize what it is. When you Mm. walk into a classroom that is uh, genuinely academic, it has a feel. And not only that, uh, it speaks a culture uh, which you then uh, most often uh, will join by sitting down and beginning to talk in the way, uh, just as other people uh, in the room uh, are talking. If in any way politic, uh, the academy is either an extension of or inevitably implicated in politics, uh, then I want to say, why do we have the machinery of the academy? If it's political through and through, let's get rid of classrooms and research libraries uh, and, and learned journals and just get down to it. Uh, of course, I don't mean that. What I do mean is that there is something that we recognize, uh, not all of us, it takes some practice and initiation, as being academic and as proceeding in an academic manner. And that is what I am always trying to identify, uh, protect, uh, celebrate, uh, and uh, argue for. Um, Let me make a couple of points here, though. Um, 
Firstly, um, there clearly is a culture of academia, and there right. clearly is um, a rhetoric, to use the word that we've been using, that I sort of argues that. for and um, justifies it, right? Um, it's yes. also the case that um, the culture of how um, politics is currently working in America is anathema to that, because the current way that our political culture is working is very much like a team sport. You go right. and you cheer for your team, and even if your team loses, it doesn't mean you go, oh, well, they're the worst team. You still find a way to keep supporting them, right? If anything, losing a particular battle just makes you more passionate for the next one. Now, if we had classrooms where half of the class showed up to repeat what they'd heard on Fox News the other night, and the other um, showed up to repeat what they'd heard on MSNBC, that would be horrible, right? So that's all true. I guess what I'm pushing back on is I'm always, I'm always sceptical of the action of trying to remove a particular domain, in this case academia, from the political. Because like I said, the, the academic culture, the academic domain, is um, supported by, justified by, reinforced by, perpetuated by um, particular rhetorics. And those rhetorics uh, do not exist independently of more overtly political rhetorics. Certainly, the, the values of reasoned discussion and so on um, owe a certain something to the rhetoric of, um, of uh, liberalism, at least within some of its strains. And I always just want to point out that the action of defining what is and is not political is itself a political act and is itself a contested act that people are going to disagree over. Well, I don't like that last move. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, the action of defining what is not is itself uh, political. I think that, uh, if you'll pardon me for saying so, is is a kind of uh, philosophical uh, gotcha trick, uh, which I uh, tend to resist. And I I would put it another way. Uh, I do agree that my view of the academy, one in which reflection and contemplation. Uh, are the central uh, and judgment, of course, uh, of a certain kind, uh, are, are, are the central activities. That view is not the only view that one could have of academic life. One could have a view of academic life, uh, and there are countries in which this view is uh, today, in which this view is predominant, a view uh, in which uh, there is finally no strong distinction between the arguments uh, and discussions that you might have uh, in a classroom and the arguments and discussions that you might have in a political rally. There is, and this gets us back to our earlier points in our discussion, there's absolutely no way for me to defend my uh, uh, idea of what academic life uh, is uh, objectively or in reference uh, to some um, fine pl uh, platonic level uh, distinction. Uh, instead, uh, and this, I think, returns us also to something that you said just a while ago, the only thing that I can do is explain it, argue for it, uh, and in the course of arguing for it, uh, point out what I think uh, are its virtues, and uh, even, if you'll pardon the word, its beauties, uh, which is what I uh, try to do, uh, especially uh, when I'm talking about uh, the teaching 
of of literature. But I am not uh, 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 I am not claiming for my view of academic life that it corresponds. Uh, to some kind of objective ideal. I'm claiming for it certain kinds of benefits, also saying of it that if you give it up, there are certain kinds uh, of conversations that you will no longer have, and those conversations are worth having. And I go out and make that argument, and I hope that people will be uh, persuaded, uh, will be uh, persuaded by it. Now, in saying that, uh, uh, I'm not in a sense, making a, sh a strong distinction between the political and the not political. I'm just saying that there are certain ways of talking that we recognize as talking academically, and part of talking, uh, part of talking academically is not to talk in a way which commands or at least uh, goes in the direction of commanding a political allegiance hmm. of any kind from those you are speaking to. Uh, and I think that's a distinction uh, worth maintaining. And it's a distinction which is being uh, very much attacked, for example, uh, by those protesting students uh, on many of our college campuses uh, today uh, who wish, uh, who rather desire, uh, that what they hear in their classrooms or elsewhere uh, correspond uh, to uh, the values they already hold and who are unwilling uh, e uh, to enter a classroom uh, where those values uh, are not only uh, uh, where those values are not uh, maintained um, and reaffirmed. Let me give you a, a contemporary that is just the other day example at um, Williams College, usually regarded as one of the top two or three uh, undergraduate schools in this country. Uh, at Williams College, a group of stu protesting students have now signed a pledge saying that they will boycott any course that does not have concerns of race at its center. Mm. You know, that to me is a perfect example of what happens when the distinction that I am trying to make, not as an absolute platonic distinction, uh, between the political uh, and the academic uh, is abandoned. As what these people are saying is that no matter what the topic is, no matter what the subject matter is, no matter what its history, no matter what kind of interest it has provoked before today, we are only going to be interested in it if you can turn it into a discussion of race. Uh, and that's the inv that is the uh, invasion by politics um, of uh, the academic uh, space. Uh, and to the extent that either students believe this, and even more so to the extent that uh, administrators allow them to believe it and act on it, uh, we're looking at a uh, quite consequential and, I think, disastrous situation. So there's two levels to my response to this, and I'll try to be summary on both the theoretical and the practical. On the theoretical side, um, I think we can sort of square what we're both saying here um, insofar as, you know, we agreed that part of the contestation of politics is not just the contestation of values, but the contestation of the rules of the game. You're right. arguing for a particular set of rules of the game, at least within 
certain institutions and spaces, Correct. academic ones. And you're linking that to a set of values. You're saying it promotes these goods. I can't prove these goods in any fundamental sense, but this is my argument. Here's what goods, I think, follow from it. And I think there might just be... Um, a quick substitution of words that would let me move past the political thing is if we just replaced political with partisan. Um, I think that would gel more easily with me. I, for a variety of reasons. Oh, I see. Um, yes. Um, in which case, that, that all makes sense. Then there's the applied stuff, and we get onto the full culture war um, college campuses thing. I've got to admit, it's been a long time since I've been on a college campus. So my first question here, before we get into the specifics of like what students are demanding and so on, is a lot of things I hear from my well, my side, and to be partisan, right? But like progressive liberals, social justice liberals, shall we say, is mm -hmm. that. The, the, our, our side, as it were, I'll just put it that way, our side is often being represented by the sort of worst and most extreme excesses, and that there certainly are some college um, protest movements whose demands and practices are unreasonable, shall we say. Um, okay. But that the argument would go, how common really is that? And is that really how we should... Is that the first image that should come to our mind when we think about um, social justice advocates on college? Or is it just sort of something that is annoying but is infrequent? I'll, I'll pause there. It's terribly common. Okay. Uh, it is absolutely common. And it's common in ways... Uh, that permeate uh, the uh, academic culture uh, and uh, perhaps don't even call attention to themselves. Uh, let me give you a, a very a, a very small example. Uh, the last time I taught an undergraduate course in 17th century poetry, uh, I found that none of the students in the course, even though most of them were English majors, uh, had any idea of what it meant to talk about or analyze a poem. Uh, as a piece of uh, craft or uh, the uh, the, the uh, uh, a verbal achievement uh, of of a kind uh, that could uh, uh, both be uh, dissected uh, uh, and evaluated, uh, all they had ever been taught in their previous courses. Uh, and this is a fairly good-sized class. All that they had ever been taught in their previous courses was to uh, mine, uh, was to look at pieces of literature and. Uh, quickly discover uh, what uh, what in them uh, could be attached to the issues of race, class, and gender. Hmm. Uh, so that uh, questions of metrics, line endings, uh, vocabularies uh, that uh, vocabularies that became more and more complicated as a poem uh, continued, or, or formal uh, devices. Uh, uh, which were at odds with the poem's apparent substantive message. All of that stuff, um, which we just knew is talking about poetry uh, uh, from my own education and perhaps from yours, uh, was gone. Mm. It had simply disappeared because it was no longer part uh, of the way they thought. They had lost the sense that literature... Uh, and in this case, poetry, uh, was a distinctive kind of thing about which there were 
some matters to be known and studied. They had just lost that, uh, and uh, all of them, they, all of them, uh, have just uh, lost that. And I think that's a, to my mind, a small instance uh, of a larger problem because. Uh, Insofar as poetry can stand in uh, for the academic enterprise, and I think in many interesting ways uh, it can, what has been lost in many of our campuses is the notion of an academic enterprise. Uh, there is a general unwillingness on the part of students and of many faculties to acknowledge that there is something distinctive uh, about uh, academic ways uh, of proceeding. And that, I think, is the result of the commitment, uh, whether uh, self-conscious or simply inherited uh, by uh, through, uh, through the culture, to uh, social justice. And my mantra on that is very simple, I always say, perhaps uh, ad nauseum, that social justice is a very good thing. It is not a good academic thing. Uh, and that's a statement that if I made it at a number of colleges today, uh, would immediately be rejected and, uh, and, and, and indeed hooted and booed, and I perhaps would be uh, uh, dislodged from the platform. Uh, recently, uh, something has happened to me that makes this not a theoretical, uh, but an experienced fact. About two months ago, uh, I was called by a member of the faculty, also an administrator, at Seton Hall University in New Jersey, uh, who told me that his university was about to inaugurate a new president in November, and as part of the ceremonies, they were going to uh, uh, have a series of lectures uh, devoted uh, to academic issues. And I was asked uh, by the person who called me, uh, but with the uh, uh, permission and direction of the provost, uh, whether I would give the first of those lectures. Uh, and I said I would be very interested in doing so, and let's see if we can arrange a date uh, that uh, fits my schedule. And uh, this person said he'd call me back, which he did a few weeks later. However, not to offer me dates, but to tell me that the invitation was being withdrawn uh, because a committee, which met not in person but over uh, email uh, exchanges, had determined that uh, it did not want the university audience to be subjected to ideas like mine. What are those ideas? Those are the very ideas that I've been expounding in the last few moments of our discussion. Uh, I, was on, I was, of course, disappointed uh, by uh, what happened, but I was not surprised because I do believe uh, that that way of thinking has more and more taken over our, our institutions of higher education. I'm actually quite excited to disagree here, and I'll explain my, my reasoning, is... Um, I have a particular view and defense, no, partial defense, of social justice ways of thinking that is sort of rooted in an anti-foundationalism. And it's just not the sort of defense that one can make to people who don't accept that overall worldview. But you do, so I'm interested to... So, first of all, just as a way of a bit of throat clearing, I've talked publicly quite a lot now at this point um, about race and racism and related issues from people of a variety of different uh, partisan backgrounds, as it happens. Um, and I have 
generally been on the side of calling for a bipartisan thickening of skins, in that both sides need to have more willingness to encounter ideas that they might very well find offensive, or, um, to put it in social justice terms, denying of their identity and humanity. I do think the left needs to, like, stay in the conversation with ideas they find offensive. I also think the political right, for all of its rhetoric, can be very easily offended and very easily triggered and refuse to engage, and I'd want to see it in a bipartisan way. So that's just a bit of um, throat clearing. Now, to take you up on your example with the poetry, this would just strike me as a perfect example of anti-foundationalism in practice, in that you have um, an object, be it um, a, a particular, let's just say a particular poem or a particular text or a particular um, uh, collection of poems or whatever, and in it doesn't make sense to just ask what does that object say without a framework in which you would approach it. So Dale Martin, who's a historian of the New Testament, who yes, I, I know him. I, I love Dale Martin. I've had him on the podcast a bunch of times. Whenever people ask him what does the Bible say about X, he gets a Bible out, puts it on the table, and says, and, and asks the Bible, well, what do you say? And of course the Bible says nothing, and he says... <laughs> so the Bible doesn't tell us anything until we read it. And if right. you read it, you're going to be consciously or subconsciously applying a particular methodology to it. And what Correct. methodology you choose will determine what you get. Are you approaching it as a critical historian or as a theologian? Those will get you different answers. So to come right. back to your poem, it strikes me that what you have there is two particular frameworks of analysis which you could bring to the poem. You have a framework of analysis that would say, what does this text tell us about the attitudes of the author or the time about gender or race or so on, and there's a particular set of tools for digging them out, sometimes well applied, sometimes badly applied. There's another analysis, which is the type of analysis you're talking about, which is what is uh, that author doing with language and why. There could be a third form of analysis, which would be how is that poem situated within a historical tradition, say? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Who's it drawing on? What's it drawing for? And I think what goes wrong... So there's two extremes I think you could fall off. One of which is to say the social justice, if we can call it that, mode of analysis, is the only form of analysis, and anything else is just a distraction from the terrible oppression of women and minorities throughout our history, and if you don't acknowledge that's what that... Usually, that's what's usually said. Which you're rightly kicking back on, right? But there's also a view which as soon as they hear the social justice form of analysis just flips out and goes, well, I'm not listening to any of this postmodern um, social justice warrior, whiny college student, mumbo-jumbo. I think that should be completely discounted from what we're doing. And what I say is, no, there are multiple forms of analysis. They all have their strengths and weaknesses, and there are some insights that you will get from a social justice analysis. There are also some definite liabilities that you will get 
if that's all that you use. But that's, that's, again, as we said of liberalism, it's true, but it's not more true for that form of analysis than it is for others. I'll stop there. Okay, I like that. I think that's that's set it up, set up the uh, question uh, very well. I thank you for that. Uh, here's what I'd say. Uh, I, of course, would separate uh, one. That is, what does the te- text tell us about gender, race, uh, class, or whatever it might be, from two and three. Uh, two is the investigation, as you said, uh, of the poet as something of the poem as something uh, designed by an author. Uh, with the the resources of his language uh, for uh, certain uh, effects that we might uh, then both uh, describe and evaluate. And uh, number three is you might take a look at uh, that author's attempt and compare it in some ways uh, to attempts to do the same thing uh, uh, in other periods. Uh, I think uh, two and three are both legitimate uh, academic enterprises, and I myself have engaged uh, in both, as, as I'm sure most teachers of literature have. Now, what I want to say about the first is that it cannot stand independently as something that has a value apart from uh, the values already embedded in two and three. And let me give you an example. If you study, as I have for, God knows, almost 60 years now, uh, the poetry of John Milton, uh, you must necessarily confront uh, I believe, uh, the general topic of Milton and women, mm. not only because of his biography and his strained relationship uh, with his uh, daughters, who more or less uh, uh, became amanuenses uh, without, uh, uh, without a consent, as it were, but also because of famous lines uh, in his poetry, as when uh, the epic voice in Paradise Lost uh, says of Adam, he and Eve, rather, He for God, she for God in him. He for God, she for God in him. Which, of course, uh, 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 encapsulates uh, an entire uh, uh, philosophy of uh, of male uh, domination, uh, Mm -hmm. which has had a very rich and robust life that has... Uh, that shows uh, no signs uh, of becoming uh, weaker uh, uh, for many centuries. So when you're studying Milton, and you have uh, as uh, a major character in one of his great poems, uh, Eve, about whom this is said, you start to ask questions about the role of women uh, and uh, and of uh, uh, gender hierarchies uh, in this poetry, and then you will be led to ask the same kinds of questions, uh, which are perfectly relevant uh, about Milton's court mask uh, comus uh, and about his uh, his uh, not to be staged uh, uh, closet drama, mm-hmm. uh, Samson Agonistes. Those those are, now. If on the other hand you wanted to force a text to yield. Uh, its attitudes toward race or gender, and there were, in fact, and, and, and the act of forcing was indeed strained, then I think that you would be bending the academic enterprise uh, to the demands and desires of social justice. So what I'm saying is that social justice questions are fine so long as they arise within the context uh, of aesthetic uh, or, uh, or literary uh, questions. They are not fine when they, when they are brought in as a, a, a perspective that competes on an equal level with either the uh, formerly literary uh, or the historical. 
you could study race, uh, for example, uh, in, my, in major English poetry of the 17th century. Uh, you would note several things. For example, that the great English poet Ben Jonson wrote something called The Mask of Blackness, in which Queen Anne and 11 of her ladies in wait, waiting uh, uh, appear in blackface uh, at the court. Uh, you could note that at one point Milton says of uh, people from Asia and also of Jews that they are inclinable to slavery, that is, they have in their nature something that makes them uh, particularly suited uh, to be slaves. Uh, and there are other things that you could point out uh, in the poetry of Marvell and uh, perhaps George Herbert, that might be a little bit more difficult. Uh, but you couldn't make a whole course of that, because there's not enough of that stuff uh, in, in the poetry. Now, what you could do, then, is perform what I think of as the Raymond Williams maneuver. Uh, you could then say, yeah, there's none of that stuff in the poetry, and that's just the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's ignoring <laughs> everything that uh, is going on, uh, you know, in the life of the very village in which Milton lived. Uh, or, you know, Ben Jonson writes a poem in praise of the country house Penserist and, and doesn't uh, seem to notice that the idealized agricultural community they, that he envisions is actually a community uh, in which people live the lives of subjugated serfs that kind of stuff. Uh, so one might think of Raymond Williams, who is, of course, a great scholar, uh, uh, as, as a precursor uh, to social uh, justice thinking. Uh, uh, but again, that would be a move that I want to resist. It is always possible to say of a body of poetry, or of prose for that matter, well, there are lots of things it doesn't address, uh, and let's lambaste it for not addressing those things. Uh, that seems to me to be spectacularly uninteresting uh, and uh, into intellectually questionable. If you have something like Paradise Lost or Dunn's Lyrics uh, or uh, Marvel's Upon Appleton House, absolutely magnificent achievements. Why not take a look at what makes them magnificent as opposed to saying to yourself, yes, uh, but they don't, they, they don't address income inequality or whatever it is that they don't address. Am I making myself clear? I, I usually do make myself clear. No, I, I feel that. Um, and I've jotted down some notes, um, and I'm going to love the response I'm going to give you. I'm, that sounds self-satisfied. Um, okay, first of all, <laughs> um, first of all, let me um, disavow a couple of practices that can be endemic on, let's just call it the social justice left, and that is um, what I think about as gotcha readings of texts. Oh, so yeah, you go right. through the text and you say, aha, well, he said something bad about black people here, as you just did with Milton, right? And the other gotcha move you can make is the opposite, and to say, aha, they didn't say anything about such and such an issue. And as you put it, I don't even need to say it's bad, it's just uninteresting. There's nothing really to, to grab. I mean, as an object-level fact, it's true, but then where do you go with that, right? So I can accept um, all of that. I'll, I'll simply make the point that all um, methods of analysis 
can be reduced to sort of gotcha moments, and it's a tendency all of us have. Intellectuals love gotcha moments, so like I see a lot of your, the first book as you going to liberals, ah, but this, and you you accused me right back when I sort of said um, the attempt to make something unpolitical is itself political, you said that's kind of a gotcha move, and it kind of is, right? We all do them, but if all your, if, if your analysis is simply gotcha moves, then it's just uninteresting. So that's the first point. Here's the substance of my response, though, and I'm going to formulate it carefully. What I'm going to accuse you of is not being a proper anti-foundationalist. In <laughs> that, um, in that, what I understood you to be saying is, um, we... I think there's two specific claims you made that I want to tease out, because I think they're different. If we have our three forms of analysis, our social justice warrior analysis, our linguistic analysis, and our historical analysis, um, there's two specific claims. One is to form a complete three-dimensional understanding of this object. Um, we need all of them, or we need multiple forms of analysis, or that no one form of analysis is sufficient, I think that's certainly true, and that's just a direct application of anti-foundationalism, in that some of these forms of analysis um, will give you results and insights that aren't available in others, and some of them will have blind spots that aren't available in others. There's another claim which was somewhat implicit or explicit in what you said, which is that we have to start with a particular form of analysis, that the social justice insights um, are acceptable if they are arising from a historical or a, a, a linguistic reading. And it's that second one. I want to agree with you on the first and dispute the second. I would agree okay. that we have these methods of analysis, and really you want to do multiple ones. And I think where you get bad writing, and I'm not even saying bad as in morally wrong, but just uninteresting writing, is when people only have one form of analysis. And um, But that could be true of a linguistic analysis. You can imagine someone nerding out over words to no end without any thought about the history of those words and their sort of ultimate social meaning and what they say about the attitudes and beliefs of the author. You could do that, and it would be uninteresting. In the same way as I could do a pure social justice analysis and just be like, well, it looks like by our standards Milton was a bit of a sexist. Um, but that's uninteresting. So you want all of them, but I think you can get um, interesting analysis and valuable and worthwhile analysis that takes any one of them as sort of a starting point, but then you, from that starting point branches out and considers others. So you could, like you say, start with a historical analysis of Milton, and then from that branch out into talking about gender. But you could do it, as a lot of feminist theory, I think, does, where you start by talking about gender, and then branch out to talking about history. So just to summarise, I think good and interesting analysis will use all of them, and any one of them in isolation could certainly runs the risk of being quite reductive. But I would deny the move that there's a, there's a correct starting point, and I would put it to you that my assertion that there's not a correct starting point is um, orthodox anti-foundationalism, if I can call it that. 
Well, again, uh, I'm going to go back to an earlier point. I, I agree with much of what you've just said, uh, but uh, I'm going back to an earlier point where I uh, asserted that uh, uh, your philosophical views, and I would, of course, include your anti-foundationalist views, if, if those are the views that you have, don't necessarily uh, have any uh, effect or realization uh, in the activities you would perform when you're not in the seminar room doing philosophy. So I would say that nothing about uh, nothing about my anti-foundationalist views uh, commits me uh, to the kind of uh, pluralism, uh, although you haven't used that word this time. Uh, commits me to the kind of pluralism uh, that you are urging. Uh, my view of the relationship between uh, one, two, and three uh, in 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 your uh, uh, taxonomy uh, depends uh, on my conviction, which is of course debatable, uh, that there is something distinctive about uh, literature uh, as opposed to, uh, let's say, sermon making or political uh, speechifying or news reporting or any other number, any any number of other uh, discursive uh, uses of prose. So, what is it that uh, we? Uh, understand uh, to have said when we say of some piece of writing that it is literary. Uh, there have been a lot of questions, a lot of answers to that question, as I'm sure you know, uh, over the centuries. My answer would be a simple one, is that it's literary when the language is calling attention to itself uh, rather than offering itself as a disposable instrument that is in service to other goals or ideals. That's what makes poetry poetry. It invites you not to discard it on the way to reaching a point that you can then take away. Instead, it invites you to stop and start and turn over pieces of language, et cetera, et cetera, as you go along until you uh, come to uh, as full an understanding of this particular achievement as is possible uh, for you. Uh, when I put it that way, uh, again, I'm uh, putting forward and arguing for a version of the literary, or what is the literary, uh, uh, that in which I uh, firmly believe. Uh, and that uh, belief uh, then uh, leads me uh, to the point that I made earlier, uh, with which I don't think you entirely disagree, uh, that if there are social justice issues uh, to be brought to bear, uh, on your analysis uh, uh, of this uh, poetry or of this uh, novel, uh, they should arise. Uh, uh, they should arise from uh, your uh, assessment of or, explore, or exploration uh, of uh, the literary qualities of the literary uh, art uh, of the literary uh, artifact. So, at the end, on this in this particular part of the discussion that we've been having, I don't think that you and I are uh, that far apart because we would both agree, uh, as I understand it, that an entire emphasis uh, on social justice issues, um, no matter what uh, the uh, aesthetic properties of the work might be, uh, would not be uh, uh, profitable and hmm. perhaps not uh, interesting. Now, uh, a a, an emphasis on the linguistic, oh, that's not a word that I use, it's a word that you use, an emphasis on the literary or aesthetic properties of a piece of work um, need not uh, be confined uh, to an, a linguistic analysis uh, of the, let's count how many times the author uses this word type. Uh, 
Mm. That is, when you're when you're doing. Uh, let me give you uh, an example. Uh, Milton's great poem Lycidas uh, is a pastoral elegy. A pastoral elegy begins. His poem begins with the three words "Yet once more." Uh, now, I, what, what I want to say about that is that for a practice reader of the pastoral elegy, and that's the kind of reader. Milton had in mind, yet once more is a very, very rich and pregnant uh, invocation, because what Milton here is saying, look, I know that I come uh, last in a long line of poets who are lamenting the death of a friend, a death that seems inexplicable, and that because it is inexplicable, calls into question the entire structure and, and justice uh, of human life. And here I am, once more, having to come uh, to this point. Now, uh, that analysis is both historical uh, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an analysis of the way uh, in which the language uh, is used uh, at that moment. It's, an, it's in fact, an, an opening of a pastoral unlike uh, almost any other um, in the tradition. That's the kind of work I do or had used to do when I was uh, a literature professor. I've been a law professor now for many years. But when I was a literature professor, that's the kind of work uh, that I do. Now, that particular poem, as it goes along, then contains uh, many passages which refer, among any, among other things, uh, to the history uh, of the Church, uh, to the corruption uh, of, uh, of the clergy, uh, to the... Uh, uh, ambitions that people have to achieve fame and the way in which they are inevitably disappointed, and a whole lot of other socio-cultural matters which should be brought to bear and often are brought to bear when talking about uh, this poem. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it, and, and to my mind, uh, uh, it's undoubted power. Uh, so there, I'm giving you a piece of an analysis which is uh, a, a example of both two and three, and which does bring in some aspects uh, of one, social justice questions like the corruption of the clergy, uh, because they are so obviously called for by two and three. And I guess that's where I would leave uh, leave it at that. Um, can I make one quick point just to clarify my own view on this? Um, sure, of course. It's so... your program. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... No, that's useful, and I think it allows me to put what I was trying to say in a little bit sharper focus. Um, so, let's separate out two views. Um, one of which is that when you look at 1, 2, and 3, there are preferable starting points. And uh, good. there are starting points which we can give reasons and values for starting there, which is what I took a lot of you to be saying. The other, the other is um, that there are impermissible starting points, or starting uh, points that would fall on the wrong side of the academic uh, partisan uh, divide as you construct it. So I can grant you the first without the second. So I can say, yeah, um, being an anti-foundationalist doesn't mean we have to be a relativist about um, which starting point is ultimately, let's just say, most likely to produce interesting work. And, you know, you've, I'm, I, I'm not going to take you up on 
uh, Milton and the various stuff you've referenced, I don't know enough about it, um, while also saying that if someone else wanted, it wouldn't be impermissible, and it wouldn't, to my mind, put someone into the partisan realm if they wanted to um, take up a different starting point. So just quickly, what does that look like in practice as a matter of the actual um, functionings of universities? Well, those two things could be corresponding to two different types of demands from students, one of which I would view as not only legitimate but normative, and the other I would view as dangerously misguided. The dangerously misguided one would be you cannot teach anything unless it starts from the point of view of social justice. That's its sort of first starting point, um, because that denies you the ability to say, well, actually, I think this starting point is more preferable, right? The other demand would be you know, out of all the courses the university teaches, there should be some, or there should be more, that start from the starting point of social justice, so that we have the option of doing classes that start from that starting point. Um, I'll pause there. Okay, uh, I appreciate the clarification. And I would say to the set, I, you and I both agree on the on the uh, unwisdom on, on uh, of the first student demand. Uh, on the second, I myself now will part company with you, uh, however reluctantly. Social justice is a political goal. There are works of art and also uh, historical uh, documents that are directly related to social justice questions, and of course they should uh, therefore uh, uh, be taken uh, into account and perhaps even foregrounded. Uh, in those cases. But to make the request or demand that a certain number of courses be devoted to social justice is to do what I said uh, earlier in our discussions that I never wanted to see being done, which is turning the university into a political instrument. Uh, now, I go very far in this direction, and I'll um, give you a few examples so, so you can see how extreme I am. I I do not believe that universities uh, uh, should, uh, as a matter of allegiance, impose sustainability responsibilities on its faculty and staff. I certainly do not believe that universities should take uh, should uh, uh, alter their investment uh, their investment strategies so that they do not uh, uh, that so that the portfolio is not does not contain uh, stocks uh, associated uh, with the fossil uh, fuel uh, industry. Uh, and I do not believe uh, that administrators, uh, from uh, the position of dean on up uh, to presidents, should ever indicate uh, their, uh, their, uh, their view uh, of, uh, of points of view that are put forward uh, by uh, the faculty. So I am arguing uh, for a, uh, a stringent purity, uh, which, uh, in fact, uh, makes the old phrase, the ivory tower, look almost pallid. Uh, and uh, uh, so that, that's where I am on this set, set of questions. Now, social justice, however, and I'm going to make a slight turn, social justice is itself a topic, is it not? Uh, that is, it's not a phrase that has always been around, at least not in the form uh, uh, that one invokes it 
these days. And therefore, if it is a topic and one that has a history, that history can be studied. So, and this is what I mean by what I've said in earlier books, that uh, you can academicize, a very ugly word, you can academicize any topic. Mm -hmm. You can also academicize social justice, although the social justice worries would be up in arms the moment that I tried to do it. Because they would say quite quite correctly, but you're taking the politics, the very heart of it, heart of social justice. And I would say, you bet. Uh, what I'm doing... Yeah, if but I were any, to, uh, any ideology cries like that when you study that's them as right. an object. That's right. right. But that's right. So we could study social justice as a phenomenon, as something that emerged, actually emerged in uh, under, uh, K-12 through teaching, uh, rather before it migrated uh, into the university. Uh, and you could study its history and talk about the people who put it forward and the people who, like me, uh, who uh, argue against it. You could have a very fine course. Uh, entitled The Rise of Social Justice Rhetoric in the Latter Half of the, uh, uh, no, in the Early Decades of the 21st Century, or something like that. You, you, you follow, of course. Uh, that would be fine. But calling in general for more social justice courses, no, I don't see that. That's, that's politicizing the university. I just disagree. I don't think... Um, so first of all, yes, on the point that you could have a course studying popular protest movements or social justice movements, you could equally have a course studying conservatism or fascism. Absolutely. Even, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that was a lot of what I spent my time doing at university in a way that isn't reducible to, but is not unrelated to either partisan expression, like my studying the history of different rhetorics has informed my partisan expression, certainly. Um, now, it depends what you mean by social justice classes. Um, if you go into a class and it's just sermonic, and it's like, you will believe in the oppressive patriarchy, then yeah. sure, um, but don't, you wouldn't see something as, like, many forms of feminist theory or critical race theory as a form of analysis that is yes. interesting and that is yeah, non-partisan. I taught, I, taught the, yeah, I taught the critical race theory course myself. But isn't that... So, so if you wanted to say we want more classes that have a critical race theory component or a feminist yeah, theory yeah. component, yeah. that no, seems to me complete. So, so, but then I'm not sure what you're, you're up in arms well, about. Well, because usually the demand for social justice courses is a demand for courses that are on the right side, I, rather, on the left side uh, uh, of the political continuum. Uh, that is, they're not demands for courses that uh, academically interrogate a topic, uh, a social justice topic. The demands for courses that breathe the right form of virtue. I guess the, uh, the distinction I'm trying to tease out here, though, is we're using the term social justice. What I'm saying is it can be both an object of study and a right. method of analysis, as in the case of feminism or critical race theory. Oh, yes, it can. It can. Um, I mean, I wouldn't... Um, advocate for a class that was just straight political indoctrination of any ideology, but I don't, at, at its best, I don't know that that is what's being asked for. I would interpret what is being asked for as, we want more feminism and critical race theory classes or classes. You're, you're, you're being over generous, I assure you. Okay, well, cool, but I, I okay, I feel we both got our views out there. Right. <laughs> um, Okay, um, should we pause it with that? That's, that's another hour we've just laid down. 
God, God, I guess it is. Too. <laughs> um, so um, the book is the first: How to Think About Free Speech, Campus Speech, uh, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post Truth, and Donald Trump. And I feel like we got through almost all of that. Um, um, I assume listeners can buy that on Amazon and find booksellers anywhere. Is there anywhere else uh, you'd like? You're not on social media, are you? Anywhere else you'd like to send listeners to? A website, anything like that? No, I don't have a website. I'm afraid I'm not on social media. The only thing I would want to say is something I should should have said before that mm. it's important to me, at least, that the title is "What to Think About" and not "How to Think About," uh, because again, what I'm trying to do is. Uh, uh, unpack the way in which arguments work uh, without necessarily uh, urging anyone uh, to embrace uh, one argumentative position rather than another. Okay. Um, correction noted. Um, listen, no Professor. correction. Um, okay. Listen, Professor, thank you so much for coming on. I really thought that was um, uh, valuable, and we managed to sort of... Um, drive to the bottom of some stuff. So I really, really appreciate your time today. I think it was, I think it was a, a great discussion, largely uh, because of the way in which you uh, uh, set the questions. And I thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please do support it and help us to continue to grow and continue to build our audience. A few simple ways you can do that. If you think you might have friends who would enjoy this, please do forward it to them. If you're not sure whether or not you have friends who would enjoy this, hit that share button, share it on your Twitter, your Facebook, what have you, and see who picks it up. And once again, as I said at the beginning, um, I'm so surprised and uh, grateful for the growth that we have seen. And I really do appreciate, as simple as it is, you know, click that share button. I really do appreciate that. And I um, think it's terrific, the number of people who have found this project interesting. If you are able to support the show in a more monetary way, we do have a Patreon page. And I will say um, all of the costs of associated with this podcast are covered by voluntary contributions from listeners. We don't have, like, any corporate backers. We don't have any, like, um, university behind us, which some academic podcasts do. And most importantly, my commitment to you, we do not do, and we are never going to do, any form of commercial advertising on this podcast. I find it annoying to have conversations interrupted by advertisements. And I don't know, I just, it's not my thing, and I know most people don't like it, and we're not going to do it. So, to help us continue to do this, getting this podcast out for free and advertisement-free, if you can chip in a couple of bucks or whatever is right for you, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And again, big, big thank you to everyone who supports the show that way. Apart from that, that is this week's episode. As I said at the beginning, lots more great interviews coming up. Follow me on social media to get announcements about the interviews I'm doing. As I do them, my Twitter handle, my Facebook are all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Apart from that, thanks again for listening, and I will see you next week. 